Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirrabbilalamin. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu one and all. Uh, with me today is uh, Dr. Salah Sharif uh, coming in from Egypt, from, from Cairo. And uh, we welcome all of you to another Roots Conversation, a casual discussion uh, relevant to uh, you know Muslims living in the 21st century. And at this particular discussion, we're going to look at a, a number of things. Uh, but before we jump into that, inshallah, I'd love to first welcome Salah. Uh, lovely to have you on board. How are you keeping today? Pleasure to, pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into the discussion, inshallah. Lovely. So uh, for those who don't know Salah, um, we, we've got a little you know, bio of Salah in the description. Uh, Salah Sharif is a PhD graduate of law from the University of Leeds. Uh, he also, I believe, studied at Assalam Institute with Sheikh Akram Nadwi for a number of years. He runs a proofreading company called Wordsmiths. Uh, and at the moment, he's in Egypt at Al-Azhar, hopefully beginning to uh, embark on his study of uh, Sharia at the Al-Azhar University. So to begin with, I prepared a few uh, quick fire questions for Salah. And uh, I'm going to go with them now. Salah, you ready? Well, quick fire questions. I'm not sure if they're quick fire answers, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go for them though. Okay, first question. Favorite classical Islamic scholar? Well, actually, so I, I, I would, my, one of my intentions is to familiarize myself over the next five years with more classical Islamic scholars, not just from what's been said about them, but reading their texts, uh, reading what they have to say about themselves um, or about Islam. So for now, we can say Ibn Taymiyyah, Sheikh al-Islam, Interesting. And, and why Ibn Taymiyyah specifically? Because, you know, they say he's a polymath. Uh, I think perhaps one of the most misunderstood people on both sides of the coin. Uh, people who are with him uh, sometimes uh, misrepresent unknowingly. People against him misrepresent unknowingly. But when you hear like people, you know, how Ibn Qayyim, his student, talks about him, how, how, how people and his contemporaries talk about him, He's uh, one of a kind though. One I of don't kind. think he'll deny that. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Jameel. Second question. Uh, who is the person that influenced you the most? It doesn't have to be Islamically influenced you, but in general, who, who would you say is your biggest influence? Let's say discount parents, for example, because parents are a given. But outside of parents. I would say, I mean, Sheikh Akram, I think, would be a clear, clear choice there. Um, Jameel. What's, I mean, one thing, yeah. what's one particular thing you say you learned from Sheikh Akram that's, you know, stayed with you? Um, I mean, it sounds so vague that it's cliche, but really thinking, I mean, thinking about the mas'ala um, to the point where when I'm not with Sheikh Akram, I appreciate him more. Uh, mm. His effect is like that. So even teachers here, and this is not in any disrespect or, or uh, belittling anyone in any, any way, shape or form, but mm. not just in Egypt, but uh, even in England or in Egypt, I have certain conversations with teacher. I ask certain questions and my ex I'm basically spoiled now because my, my expectations are too high. Because when you when you ask people like Shah like a question that's seemingly uh, basic, your answer with something that you would never have Previously, even thought to think of it from perspective, and yet, subhanAllah, at exact in the in the in the in the perfect balance, like from one perspective, it's a, it's a unique perspective. You never think of it from that perspective. You never come to that conclusion, but it makes perfect sense. 
it's not it's not outside, but it, it, it's obvious once once you know it, and, and he would answer in such a fashion, in such a deep understanding, to the most seemingly basic uh, questions. And I got used to that over eight or nine years. Like uh, that's what I'm expecting. Um, and so now I ask other people questions, and they'll just give you a normal answer, which is fine. Like that's that you know, that's what was expected. Then, but I'm looking for more. Uh, and then, then you realize actually this is a special guy. This is a special man. Um, and everyone talks about their teacher in 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 a faraway language and say this guy's best. And because of the impact he has on you, you appreciate him more. I think because I have more than one teacher, more than one person interest, and I'm so grateful to many people. Inshallah, I think I'm not mentioning that. I'm not. I'm not saying. This, I'm not describing him in this way because he's my teacher. Objectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, he, he's really that level uh, of like each head of someone who's really thinking uh, independently and really when he answers questions, um, he doesn't just answer the the mess, the the, the 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 point of contention. He really gets to like felsef felsef like oh, like the, the the reasoning behind it, and he'll say things like, you know, if you if you agree with everything I've said then I've not taught you very well because that's not what I'm teaching you to do. And in fact, it's haram on you to even agree with me when you don't even know my argument, when you don't know, even know my evidence or my understanding. Right? Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, this has had a tremendous impact on me. That's beautiful. And I think the, the beauty is, uh, I think key things that stand out are his critical thinking and him yeah. encouraging critical thinking in his students. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and so part of what you see, well, like I say, it's not quick. <laughs> I'm not giving you quick answers, but you know, that what you just said is hit the nail on the head because mm -hmm. it's really easy enough to, to to say that in theory and to say oh critical thinking um but how many how many students are clones of teachers and mm -hmm. that's not the fault of the student that's the fault of the teacher because uh you know I'm not sure people's intention but you, you see that the the mannerisms of the student is the same as the teacher the the answers that they have the, the, of the messiah it's, it's, it's all exactly identical because maybe indirectly they're teaching them uh, this is the correct Islam, which Jackson is like, look, you know, you could think critically. You disagree? Okay, come with an argument because I'm going to come with an argument. And let's see. Let's see where, let's see where the arguments take us. And I've seen it in practice as well. And his students are very uh, brave with that. And, they, and then they, they'll come and disagree and they say, okay, let's, let's, let's discuss it. And he reminds you of Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi with his counsel of ulama. And that's how he um, deals with the Masail. Um, so, you know, may Allah preserve him. I mean, third question, uh, favorite book after the Quran Ooh. and the Sunnah? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> asterisk <laughs> and, the, and the books of Hadith. And this is actually a coincidence that happens to be right here, but it's uh, Ibn al Qayyim's uh, The Invocation of God. Um, this is, I read it maybe three or four times. Is really, um, is really a fantastic book. And as you can see, I've got my, my tab there as well. Um, this is a phenomenal book. I really, really strongly recommend this. Um, if you want to know the difference between the living and the dead, i.e. the living dead, then, then, you, then you read this book. And then you understand what, what it means to be alive and what it means to be dead. Um, a close second will be um, the autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley. Uh, those are my those are my two favorite books. Interesting. How did the autobiography of Malcolm X? They're quite different, both of them. But how did the autobiography yeah. of Malcolm X impact you personally? 
Well, I mean, I, yeah, so I, I tend to say, like, this is my favourite Islamic book, my favourite non-Islamic book, but that's not even true because, uh, you know, I heard that after the Qur'an in, in America, most people convert to Islam after reading uh, that biography. Um, so it's very Islamic. But SubhanAllah, he's just such an inspiration, man. Such an inspirational character. Uh, his sacrifice and juhud and just drive and determination um, you know, one of my friends was quite shocked for me to say to, to say he's one of the greatest figures of Islam, of Islamic history, and he was like, "Yeah, you know, contemporary." I was like, "No, of Islamic history." You know, uh, you want to say Abu Hanifa, you want to say Ibn Taymiyyah, you want to say Salah al-Din, Malcolm X, to, to that level, because of, of each and each generation needs uh, their the men. So, um, you know, between his drive and determination and his sacrifice and his pursuit of the truth itself at all costs you know what can you say rahimahullah rahimahullah ta'ala no that's um i think that's very well that's a, a really good concise way to summarize uh, how amazing a figure and how actually underappreciated a figure he is absolutely on him um and the phases he went with especially the phase in which he finally passed away with going to hajj and seeing yeah. that you know the, yeah. the international nature yeah. Mm. Now, um, jumping straight into kind of the actual discussion, and I wanted to start at the starting point for you personally. There's a line of Arabic poetry that states, that in the beginning, seeking knowledge is as bitter is as bitter as it gets, but then towards the end, as you continue seeking, you start tasting the sweet fruits of it and it's become sweeter than honey so that bitter beginning when was your first kind of that thought popped into your head that i want to seriously learn about islam and i'm not happy with my kind of basic or primitive superficial whatever understanding of islam and i really want to go deeper and learn when, when did that that spark uh, you know go off in your mind you know subhanallah uh, uh, in answering this question um it, it will, it will show how somebody who may not necessarily uh, be an alim and, and go down the path of uh, seeking alim can get the reward for someone who becomes an alim or someone who becomes a dai or someone who becomes a teacher and an academic and who then teaches a thousand. Even those thousands of people can be uh, on the scales of the first person. And the reason why I say that is because I was, you know, the earliest thing that I can recall from this journey is in college uh, and in England, if anyone's international, then that's just before university, it, between the ages of 16 to 18, you have two years in college. Um, and at the time I was just an average, average Muslim praying, but still, you know, listening to music and just a normal teenager, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. I went to Umrah with my, my, my parents, with my dad and then. Um, when I came back, I decided, you know, um, I should really make some changes. Um, what's the, one of the first things? Okay, let me delete. I deleted all the music off my phone. Mm. I deleted all the music off my phone. And uh, when I got on the bus the next day, <laughs> I didn't know there was nothing to do. So I just went on YouTube, started listening to music again. I was like, well, there's nothing for me to do. So one of my friends, Barakallahu uh, he said he, he just started listening to a Sira series. Mm. Um, and it, he wasn't even that religious himself, but he just, just happened to come across a couple of episodes and he was listening to it. Mm. And so I downloaded it. I said, okay, I've got a replacement at least. And I started listening. 
Um, and there was a there's a series on the hereafter, a series on the life of the Prophet والسلام, and a series on the, the prophets from Adam to Isa And half an hour to college and half an hour back every day, I would listen. Half an hour there, half an hour back. Um, and you know, the Prophet والسلام, he would say, خير so the best of actions are those that are consistent, even if they're small. And that's what happens day after day. So I'll be listening to the seerah. And mashallah, may Allah bless the, the, the imam who was um, giving the, the series, giving the lecture series, a uh, very encapsulating uh, narration. And that's, and, and that's not really talab al-ilm. It's just, you're just listening to an audio book uh, half an hour a day or one hour a day on the way to, on your commute. Um, but really, that was the start. Because after like six months, you finish the seerah, the entirety of the seerah, in quite a bit of detail. And a few months later, you finish the lives of the prophets and the hereafter. Um, and then, so that year, really, you know, I started to become quote unquote practicing, you know, like now really kind of be more conscious about not let me try and follow the rules of Islam and so on and so forth. Um, and then going into university, um, then, you know, after that, you know, the rest is history, just one, one step after the other attending my first academic class of, you know, a fiqh book uh, from cover to cover. And then second year university, I started with Shaykh Akram. And then the rest was history. And then uh, and, and then we continued. So, you know, that brother who recommended the series, uh, may Allah SWT accept it from him. Um, it's beautiful how, um, you know, a lot of the time, even, you know, when you come to the biography of scholars, of previous scholars in the past, how their turning point you know, between a previous life and a life in knowledge or seeking knowledge or a life where they have like a serious purpose and a serious pursuit is seemingly the most perhaps apparently insignificant thing that turns their life around. Uh, Imam al-Shafi'i was, you know, obsessed with Arabic poetry um, until one of, you know, somebody comes across him and says to him that, you know, stop wasting your time with poetry and start learning hadith. Um, and that's when he goes to Muslim Ibn Khalid al-Zanji, Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, roaming the markets, when a shabi finds him and says, you know, a man, an intelligent man like you should be seeking knowledge. Um, Fudail ibn Iyad, who was a, a bandit, you know, a street robber, and then he kind of turns his life around. So this, it's interesting how, I think when you look at somebody who is um, a student of knowledge or a scholar or an aspiring scholar, you kind of assume, you're looking at the mountain, the tip of the, of the iceberg, and everyone kind of assumes this guy was born like this guy was born in Sheikh Akram's image, but there's there's a journey, right? Um, yeah, and and that's that's yeah, really yeah. that's really interesting. That uh, you know, a small like kind of an, an audio book, uh, you know, or, or a series of lectures kind of uh, turn things around. From those lectures that you listened to, what was the most impactful? Was it the Sirah? Was it the life of the prophets? That's difficult. That's difficult. Um... Ah, it's difficult <laughs> because the you know the hereafter series from when you die uh, through the grave to Yom Al-Qiyam to the series that's really impactful. And although I started with the Sira, I tell people to start with that, or uh, that's what I used to tell people. Um, the life of the prophets, um, especially say the life of Musa alayhi salam, and and, and, and that that extended many series. Uh, that was uh, hugely impactful. And then you have the lives of the Sahab, you have the lives of Umar ibn Khattab. So like, I remember, this is at least how I felt listening to at the time, you, you listen to the life of Umar ibn Khattab and you think, wow, Umar, Umar's the guy, Umar's the best. And then you listen to one episode, the first episode of the life of Abu Bakr. Yeah. And then you say, 
Who's Armand? But, you know, Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr, he's the guy. Um, but to be honest, you know, nevertheless, notwithstanding all of that, you know, the life of the Prophet, um, you know, after read, after listening to like five or six or seven episodes, you really start to ask yourself, you know, you're not, you're not a true Muslim until you love the Prophet more than you love yourself. And how can you love the Prophet when you don't even know him, when you don't know about his life, when you don't know about his, uh, his, his journey and his sacrifice? And um, so definitely I would say, you know, if you had to answer, then you would say the life of the Prophet. Um, Another interesting point I find is like the how underrated and underestimated storytelling is, you know, yeah. and how important it is for a person's life to change that, you know, a, a story tends to be the thing that kind of really transforms the uh, a lot of people's lives and turns them around. Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time as you have this kind of track of like, um, becoming practicing, I'm learning Islam, I'm seeking knowledge. Okay, now I'm seriously seeking knowledge. At the same time, there's a parallel track that you're on. You study law at, was it King's or was it Queen Mary? Queen Mary, yeah. Was it at Queen Mary and then you do your master's in history? I think, was that at SOAS, if I'm not mistaken? And then your PhD in law at Leeds. So you've got these two parallel tracks. So, you know, when we talk about your secular education, you know, what took you to the point of seeking, uh, you know, even to do a PhD uh, in a subject such as law? And I think your particular subject was on dehumanization and drones. Uh, how did you, you know, a lot of people struggle to balance this kind of, there's all the question of dunya versus akhirah or deen versus dunya. And it's, it's uh, not often you see somebody who's able to balance both or pursue both seriously. Um, what was it that you did that allowed you to do that? Um, what was the thinking behind it? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a few questions there. So the first is like, what you know, what, why uh, the academia to the level of PhD? And I mean, I'm not gonna revision version of history and go back and say, yeah, I wanted to, you know, join between the two. No, I'll, I'll just say explain how how it came about at the time. And and Subhanallah. You know, most of my life is organic. What I mean by that is like, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just guiding me one way as he is to everyone. Um, mm. And if you purify your intention uh, to a certain thing, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to open the doors and anything's happen. Um, as for academia then, to be honest, I've always been um, inclined to learning and and. Uh, I need to be careful how I phrase this because I don't mean any disrespect to anyone who works. Like, obviously, 99% of the society, they're working in, in traditional jobs. And yeah. so from the bottom of my heart, no disrespect. That's, if, you're, if your risk is halal, then may Allah bless you. Uh, but just for me, like my nafs, my own self, uh, just found the idea of that very difficult that, you know, from nine to five, I'll be fulfilling an act. I'll be giving a service, whatever that means. Maybe even as a lawyer, as a, as a dentist, as a, anything. I'm giving, but I'm not taking. So almost in a selfish way to say that I'm not benefiting any from it. Of course, you're benefiting from that. Your your life experiences and, and even the salary, you know, to feed your family. There are many benefits, but just from deep down, I, I wasn't satisfied with it. I wasn't looking forward to just working and then coming back from work and you've got two or three hours. Uh, and and that's, your, that's your life. And so I realized... Uh, Shortly after I started university, that actually most people they enjoy the university experience, but they don't enjoy the studying that they do in university. They attain the degree to get a job. Whereas I realized that I actually enjoyed the process itself. Uh, of course, I had modules that I really didn't enjoy, but when I had my dissertation, 
um, and there were modules that I actually did enjoy. I I I I really enjoyed it. I I I got so many books from the library. I had to get a little suitcase and and take it to the library. I used to skip my lectures and just stay in the library and read through the books just to write my dissertation. And I really enjoyed that period of time. One of probably the most enjoyable period of my time in my life, to be honest with you, that year. And I realized that actually I'm enjoying this process, this learning process, and it doesn't feel like work. It's hard work, but it's not work. It's not work work. Um, and then I realized actually, you know what? Academia, like learn, it's just learning. Of course, there's so much more to it, but it's learning. A 60-year-old professor is reading a book. He's learning something new every day. He's reading a page that he didn't know before. So that kind of like self-development, uh, taking something in, learning about history, a lot about, about politics, learning something. Um, and that's why I gravitated towards academia because even if you're working 40 hours in a week, it didn't feel like work. It's ilm. Mm. It's not shari, it's not sacred knowledge. It's not shari ilm, but it's ilm, it's knowledge. Mm. Um, and... And that's why I started gravitating towards academia. But there was, the reason was twofold. Because the, the more I continued the Islamic knowledge, I, um, I, that was my passion. I gravitated towards that. Yeah. Now, I don't want to be like, unfortunately, uh, more often than not, I don't want to be like the average student who, student of knowledge, they don't really think that far into the future, less. So they, they gather some money, then they'll go abroad and study. And what happens? The money finishes and they come back. And they don't really have much to come back to. And they end up working just a minimum wage job. Not that there's anything wrong with a minimum wage job, but it doesn't fulfill their needs because they're working 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week in order to feed the family. And they're not doing the teaching, research, preaching, uh, even ibadah that they wanted to. I didn't want to fall into this cycle. So I wanted a more sustainable model. And so academia really facilitates that ilm. Although you're working 40, 50 hours a week, your timetable is very flexible. Other than around 10 hours a week of, of, or less, uh, or, or, or fewer hours uh, of teaching, the rest of the timetable is yourself. So you can wake up after the Fajr, do your research, and then go to a sheikh's house and have a lesson. You know, or, or, so you can, you, can, you can tailor your timetable. So that was the plan. Go through mm -hmm. academia and then uh, simultaneously uh, progress in sacred sciences and um and that's why i did a phd one because you know uh i look forward to life as an academic compared to any other job um and also it would facilitate even for me from a practical perspective as i just explained but also from an intellectual perspective your brain you know you're learning uh you're primed for seeking ilm. and so that was the idea that was the idea uh, mm. to continue in, in conjunction with the two and I think once you, um, I think I remember once vaguely you posting on Facebook about a, uh, a conversation you had with Dr. Uthman Latif, I think, who might have convinced you to go into academia. Uh, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that true? Is my memory serving me right? Um, so, I mean, that was a, um, a very impactful meeting. No, well, bless him. It, it, it didn't convince me to go into academia because I was already asking him uh, for advice about that. Um, but... And he was like one of my role models as a as a Muslim academic, and so he was like living the dream that I was that I wanted, I wanted to seek. But mashallah, may Allah bless him. Like I love him so much. He, and I remember I was like twenty years old. Um, he invited me to his house. I came over. His wife cooked his dinner, and uh, you know, and I would just be asking him, you know, about the academic life and and, and my route towards academia. And he would just answer, 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 answer. 
And then someone called in, he answered the phone and he said, oh, I'm just in a meeting. Can I call you back? And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is a meeting. This is a meeting worth getting a phone call. I felt so honored. Like I'm just a kid, point, really. And that that was just so, such a profound impact that he had such respect and, and, and he honored me. And of course, he didn't even remember that. Um, I think a couple of years ago, I, I, I met him in Manchester and I told him, I said, look, like uh, five, six, seven years ago, you did this and I'll never forget it. And obviously he was none the wiser. He, 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 he replied in his normal, beautiful way. Um, so, you know, mashallah, like he's, uh, and, and he's, he's a perfect academic, mashallah. So if anyone wants to go into academia, he's, he's the role model to have for sure. I think it's really important to have um, if you're if you're choosing a path, then it's important to have people who are on the path already that you're looking at. But there's there's an element too that's you know that's outside of academia and outside of the Islamic sciences, and that's that's your business that you run, Wordsmiths, yeah. that you run yeah. flexibility from home. You've got a team of freelancers, uh, you know, high quality, you know, top quality proofreading, copywriting, etc. Um, and we worked together on some bits around Wordsmiths as well before, so I know a bit about your business. Um, and may Allah place barakah in your business. Now, the question I have, uh, you know, on other podcasts, you've discussed entrepreneurship in some detail. The question I have is is really more about the juggling game. How do you manage your time between your business, your studies, and now your marriage, your family responsibilities as well? Um, how do you manage your time between the three? And how have you managed your time? I mean, uh, have there been times where the time management hasn't been great between the different responsibilities? And of how did course. you overcome that? I mean, of course, I mean... Um... I mean, I've got the blueprint. Whether you follow the blueprint, that's something else. Um, and the, the extent to which you follow the blueprint, you will be more productive. So periods of time, you know, I'm not following the blueprint. It's not going well. And you have to pick yourself up and carry on. You know, when I'm telling you, this is how you become more efficient with your time. doesn't mean I'm doing it day in, day out. I'm trying my best. Uh, we're all human. Um, so that's what's important for the viewer to understand is that, okay, this is what you're aiming towards. Uh, don't give up because you flopped it for, for a week or two. I flopped it for more than that. Um, so yeah. it's just about how, how much we can, you know, if you do 70% over a period of time, you're going to get so far. You don't, it doesn't need to be 100%. Um, but to answer the question, uh, I think the key is compartmentalization. Compartmentalization, which is, means segmentation, to split up, split up the time of the day. Not all time is equal. Uh, and I've said this so many times. Uh, one hour at 7 a.m. is not the same as one hour at 7 p.m. Um, there are some acts, there are some tasks that you need to be at full brain power, full energy to do. There are some acts that are important, but you don't need to be at full brain power to do. And therefore, necessarily, if you do those secondary acts, when you have full brain power, technically you're wasting time. Mm. And usually people don't think about it in this way. They don't think that I'm doing something useful, I'm wasting time. No, if you want to really reach that high level of efficiency, this is a form of wasting time. Yeah, Just like Islamically, shaitan, if he, he'll try to make you do kufr, he'll make you disbelieve. If you can't, if that's too far-fetched, he'll try and make you do bid'ah, he'll introduce something in, new into the religion. If you can't, major sin. If you can't make you do major sin, he'll make you do minor sin. If you can't do minor sin, he will make you do something halal, mubah. So that to distract you from ha 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 um, uh, something uh, rewardable. And he'll go further. If he can't make you do something halal, he will encourage you to do something rewardable. He will encourage you to do ibadah. And you think, how can shaitan encourage you to do ibadah? Because it's at the expense of something more rewardable. Mm. And so, and, you know, using that, extrapolate that analogy, you're doing something useful. Okay, but you could have done something 
not just more useful, but more time intensive. So let's put that into practice. I split my day into four tiers. So Fajr to Dhuhr is tier one. Anything that really requires uh, intense uh, concentration, and as in the other text, uh, studying a text, uh, core lessons, whether it's Arabic or Quran or anything else, I do have this time. And when I was in university, we'd be preparing for exams and revising and reading the textbooks. I would do at this time. Yeah, it's not notice. I didn't segment things into importance, not in terms of intensity. Something may be very important. Obviously, the caveat is uh, time sensitivity. Something is urgent, needed the same day. Then you're gonna have to do it at that time. Sometimes that happens to me too. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, with the exception of something that's time sensitive, no. One, this is reserved for the most important. Things. I'm sorry, the most intensive things. Tier two this is when I rest. So from Bordasa. I mean, in England, uh, it's a bit the, the timings of, of Salawat are more volatile. So you can say from 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. And then tier two is 12 to 2. Now I'll rest. I'll nap. And I can talk about nap as I have done for hours and then I'm a nap connoisseur. Uh, I'll nap oh, every single day. Um, eat, rest. You know, this is just the rec recuperation time. Tier three, now this is from like or from like 2 p.m. to 4, 5, 6 p.m. Now I'm doing the important things that I don't need to be 100%. I'll teach, I'll teach at this time. I'll have meetings, uh, I'll review, I'll re revise. Uh, I will answer emails, phone calls, etc. And then to, by tier four, by like after Maghrib, maybe four, five, 6 p.m., my brain, my brain is fried at this point. Like uh, uh, in terms of intellectual uh, tasks, it's finished. So now I'll do other things. I'll, um, I'll socialize, uh, I'll go to the gym, I'll watch a movie, I'll do something, that's what I'm gonna do at that time. So everyone's different. So when I when I give this timetable, uh, I, I advise people to extrapolate. Uh, you can switch around, extra. But usually the asal, really, with, with humankind, the, the asal is, is, to be honest, it's this timetable. Burikil ummah fi bukuriha, the ummah, uh, the barakah of the ummah is in his early mornings. And so that between Fajr and Dhuhr is key. And so mm. what we've just described really is accountability. I waste time too, but I know how much time I'm wasting. And so, mm. and I acknowledge that I've wasted this amount of time. But what many people do is they'll do a task that takes an hour, they'll take three or four hours. They don't realize that they're wasting time. It's because there's no accountability in the day. You've not segmented to say this one hour slot is here. This every minute should be accounted for. So if I've wasted 90 minutes, I know that I've wasted 90 minutes. But some people, they'll waste 90 minutes without even realizing it. And when you don't realize it, the whole day just gets bubbled up. It's like... Just uh, on that point, like, what do you think, what do you think yeah. is the greatest... Maybe there's like a consensus between the human race on this. But what do you think is the greatest uh, time waster, time blocker? That, what is the greatest thing that kind of eats up, consumes time? And what do you think is, you know, how do you deal with it? With it? Yeah, I mean... I don't deal with that word very well, to be honest. That's, that, that is a weakness of mine, that if I, mm -hmm. I needed to find, uh, and you know what I'm going to say, to be honest with you, it's very but if I, because you can always improve, right? So the mm -hmm. next step for me to improve is, you know, put my phone away. Um, yeah. And that, that, that's the obvious answer. So um, when you, the thing is, when you, when you get distracted by notification, it takes another... 10-15 minutes to get back into the zone even if you think you're going back to work 
you're not at the full situation. You've been, you've snapped out of it. Then you have to snap back into it. Then you get snapped out of it. So the the, the efficiency of uh, that hour has been greatly diminished. So the best advice, really, and I hope I can imp- implement that myself, is do 45 minutes of uninterrupted efficient work. Put your, turn your internet off. Put your phones in a different room. Then for 15 minutes. Do what you want as you please. Go on, go on social media. Go on your phone. Do what you want. Then do another forty-five minutes and do it like that, and and sacrificing a quarter of the of, of your time. That's 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 not as much as you think because when you're doing both simultaneously, you're sacrificing way more than a quarter. So this is a more realistic way to do it. Do you think multitasking works? Uh, in, in what in what context? In general, say, you know, when you say 45 minutes of un- uninterrupted work, do you do wordsmiths in one tab and in another tab and uh, some law research papers in the third tab? Or do you believe it has I mean, to be one deep work? I can't, I can't speak on behalf of all the people. You know, if something works for someone else, then I, I can't really criticize that. But I, I sounds a bit far-fetched, to be honest, to be able to do uh, two, yeah. three things at the same time efficiently. The thing is, you're bound by your... Um, situation so for me with wordsmiths i don't have a choice like right now look i've got my phone and then i've got the wordsmiths phone um it has to be there at all times like what kind of that that that's you know that's the necessary evil of uh, running your own company that's digitally run um so i might be in tier one doing something very useful and then i have to deal with something to the wordsmiths Okay, mm-hmm. that's the sacrifice I have to make. But as far as it's in your control, then no, I would compartmentalize. I think compartmentalization is very underrated, whether it's with time or with tasks. Uh, I'll do some, you know, do something for an hour properly, then do the second thing for an hour properly. Um, to do two things both at the same time, unless you like, you know, you, you have a very unique system that works for you. In which case, you know, uh, Godspeed. But otherwise, uh, I, I would advise that generally. I would, I would, I would, I would not advise it generally. Sorry. Mm, um, you know, when it comes to uh, kind of productivity, time management, is there, is there a, you know, you know, there's so many systems out there, you know, get work done, uh, deep work. There's so many books out there. There's been a kind of a craze, a fascination with time management in the last, I don't know, fifty to eighty years. You've been at uni. Um, you know, when it comes to university students even when it comes to early career professionals. I think the university students are have too much spare time. Early career professionals are somewhat burnt out. They just kind of realize that, you know, 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. goes by in a flash. And, and there's two very different ways to live life and two very different ways to look at time on, on both angles. Um, do you think when it comes to kind of in general, uh, you know, like you mentioned, we mentioned the smartphone, uh, there's also, I think, one of the things that kind of sucks a lot of time is um, either console gaming or Netflix or watching movies. Um, and I've been thinking about this for. I want to get your thoughts on this, Salah. Is it the fact that do is it that people need more time management techniques, or is it that we all need a bit more of a sense, a stronger sense of purpose, uh, a kind of a, a more deeper connection to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala to feel that urgency with that time? Which is it? Is it the is it the the vision or the perp sense of purpose, or is it the technique that's letting us down? So, I mean, if I could share my screen, you would see on the side my notes. Not for this conversation, but I just brought it up uh, from le- not, not not a podcast, but some lectures that I did on time management. You'll see, and I brought it just to refresh my memory of what I usually say about time management. 
at the top it says why and on the, and, on, and in the middle it says how why then how and why goes before how because you know i've done lectures on productivity and time management more than once and i've done it in the, in, in the same location in the venue uh, in multiple years more than once and um you know one of one of the attendees said look i attended this class last year and it was amazing and i uh, you know i was a superhero for for two weeks and everything and then it slowly went back to how, how it was before so what i what i say is the why is infinitely more important than the how the how mm. Um, the how is necessary. The how is necessary without a doubt, but the how um, is not sustainable alone, right? The how is not sustainable. Uh, it gives you a format, but unless you have a stronger uh, reason, if, unless you have a driving force behind it, then you know eventually you're just going to get bored or tired or burnt out. So I think uh, unequivocally, the the why, the drive behind it. Um, is is more important and is the priority, and that's why I start I start my um, lecture with the why. And what I say is, I say, look, there's like three levels of um, efficiency, um, three levels of productivity. Um, the first level, and usually people who attend this, people who are listening to this, inshallah, I don't think I think more, more often than not, they're not part of the first level because they're trying to better themselves. But the first level of, of, of efficiency of someone who's just, just not efficient um, I, and is it, not productive at all. Um, and to be honest, I don't see how such a person would even hold up a job. You have to wake up at a certain time every day, but you know, someone who's just underperforming, just not doing much, right? Um, the second level, maybe most people come into this category. Uh, and if you find yourself in this, category then the idea is to try and get to the third category right but the second is someone who is productive and uh, efficient with their time for a reason so mm. it's a university student who's got exams so they fix up uh, they go to the library and they've got a timetable it's for that exam mm. similarly someone who goes to work monday to friday they wake up they wake up early right so they're capable of doing it mm. on the weekend they don't uh, holidays they don't but they do it for, for work right it's for a reason the issue with this is when that reason expires then now you're no longer productive so when the student has the exam and the exam has been passed and the letter okay then afterwards um they've got no motivate they've got no reason to be productive the worker where on the weekend they've got no reason to be productive on holidays they've got no reason to be productive right and if you if you want if, you, if you're wondering well am i in this category or not well I'll ask you, you know, do you wake up at the same time on a work day and on a weekend? If the answer is no, then perhaps you're part of this because you're waking up for work. You're not waking up for the sake of waking up to be productive. You're waking up for work. And so that brings us on to the level three, which is being productive for the sake of inherently being productive for the sake of uh, being productive for the sake of having an output. Um, contributing, whether it's to yourself or your religion or humanity or the ummah, whatever it may be, you're being productive for the sake of productivity itself. Um, and that's the third tier. So whether it's a weekday or a weekend, whether you have a lecture at 9 a.m. or 1 p.m., you're waking up at the same time. Because if you've got a lecture at 1 p.m., that means you wake up, say, 6 or 7 a.m., you've got five hours. And you think, okay, I've got five hours to do something with that now. If you've got uh, a lecture at 9 a.m., you say, okay, now I've got two 
us, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is a different mentality. And, you know, what I always tell people is that, I mean, the, what's the difference between uh, you who is maybe see themselves as mediocre and someone who, who is a high achiever? Largely, the only difference is that they've convinced themselves that they're a higher achiever, that they've said, it's a, it's a mental thing to say, okay, let me do this. It's a mentality, uh, almost like fake it till you make it. Like you say, okay, I'm gonna, you know, there's no reason why I can't be like that person. There's no reason. Very, you know, it's not very often that it's a, it's a natural, inherent talent. Sometimes it is, of course. You've got talented people, people who don't, who don't need to have more than four hours sleep. You know, people like that exist. Um, mm. But more often than not, it's a mental thing, right? And so, you know, I, I usually speak to people, uh, whether they're university graduates or um, intelligent people, and it's like, you are the creme de la creme of the ummah. Like, don't ever say, um, oh, the ummah is in such a state. No, you are the ummah. You, if you need change, then actualize that change yourself. Um, mm. Don't look left and right. You're, you know, it's at your hands. And, you know, this is the why. Um, and the earlier Muslims, uh, their why was strong enough that they you can figure out a how. If your why is strong enough, you can figure out a way to use your time, uh, how to bend your schedule. But if you haven't got the why, no number of houses are going to help you. No number of techniques and books and productivity tips are going to help someone who's lacking the why. Do you think that's, would you agree with that statement? Yeah. Yes. I mean, like I say, uh, the how is, you know, uh, the the, the thing is like it's, 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 you can just phrase it as like the foundation um, mm. and then the, the rest of the building the structure of the building is the, the, the why is the foundation but nevertheless like the how is, is the water and sunlight and everything else to, to grow the plants like uh, mm. the more the more you have the better um, mm. but it needs to be based on uh, that how um, and I always tell people look never compare yourselves to, to others because as soon as you start comparing yourselves to others you're going to start feeling happy about, about yourself because there's always someone who wakes up later than you there's always someone who's going to do less so you start you start feeling a bit complacent right um, mm. you know instead you compare yourself to two one to yourself uh, did you do better today than you did yesterday did you do better than last year uh, 10 years ago are you improving are you going towards Allah or away and the two is you compare, compare of the people of the past because now we can pick and choose uh, who has really achieved a lot in their life and start to emulate. Um, and the small book that I always recommend is The Value of Time by Abu Fatah Abu Hudda. Uh, and it's very small, very, very small. But it packs the punch. It's uh, uh, very, um, very impactful when it comes to utilizing time. Who who's somebody from the past that you look up to? Maybe uh, you know from whether it's from the Muslim history, whether it's Islamic history, or whether it's non-Islamic history, who you kind of, in your opinion, really use their time well. I mean, there's so many. I mean, maybe every day of the week you you, you ask, you can give a different answer. Um, mm. Imam Nawawi um, com comes to mind um, in that same book, uh, yeah. the value of time. He mentions a narration from Imam Nawawi and. He'll be constantly, uh, um, just constantly working, constantly reading. It was said that he didn't sleep lying down for two years. He would sleep standing up at the, you know, he'll be reading books and then he'll fall asleep. Um, 
um, and he'll wake up and then he'll carry on and he'll go to sleep and he'll wake up and he'll carry on to the extent that he wouldn't even eat. He'll forget to eat. He's so in, he's so engrossed and immersed that he forgets to eat to the extent that, you know, his body would be withering away. His sister would come and feed him um, and he'll just, he'll just eat and then he'll carry on without even realizing to the point where he'll say, okay, you know, shall we eat? And she said, look, I've already fed you. Like he doesn't even realize what's happening except for the ilm itself, uh, obsessed mm-hmm. with the ilm to the extent where he's walking home from the masjid and then someone stops him and says uh, yeah imam you know sit and chat with us you're always just walking and rushing and he says okay do you have a question he said no it's, i'm not asking for a fatwa i'm just i just want you to sit and chat with us he said he, he points at the sky and says can you move can you stop this i point at the sun hmm. can you stop this and he says no hmm. says, then i can't sit with you if you can't stop time i can't waste time speaking to you when i've got so much to achieve okay here's the point Imam Nawawi died at the age of, in his 40s, maybe I think 44. Mm. And yet, the most widely published book in the history of Islam after the Quran is what? Bayad Salihi. And so, so, what did he do in those 44 years? And you know, you can actually make a case to say that his lifestyle contributed to short life, because 44 was still a short life at that time. Uh, mm. he, he could have or should have lived longer really if he took care of his body properly and he slept because people say when you don't sleep enough it uh, shrinks your lifespan and it's probably true mm. uh, scientifically it's true mm. okay but <laughs> this, you know, please take what I say with a picture of salt like don't think really too, too deeply but what's the point what's the point of living longer when he achieved what he achieved in 44 years like mm. why, why do I want to live 88 years uh, mm. of, of, a, of a meaningless life or give me 44 with what Imam Nawi Arba'in and Nawi the first text mm. that any hadith student needs to study or memorize is Arba'in and Nawi and it's like look at the barakah in those 44 years um, mm. so really uh, an example of you know quality over quantity um, what was the, you know uh, really living a long life is, is overrated <laughs> we need to live an impactful an impactful life what he did with mm-hmm. those 44 years. I don't think 188 years of uh, my life will, will, will be able to do what he did in 44. So, and I think that's something it's really important that, you know, with the plethora of personal development, productivity, time management books out there today, that this kind of spiritual element, the barakah in time, the waking up for salah, the waking up early for, for you know, the uh, the amount of ibadah that you have in your day kind of blows that spirit and that power and the energy into the time that you have for whatever pursuits you're pursuing. Um, that kind of shouldn't be, we shouldn't throw that out uh, when it comes to our, you know, how we decide to manage our time, how we decide to become productive. And looking at Imam and no, I th- I'd say, you know, many scholars mentioned this, that the, the number one other thing that is the, you know, so many, so many scholars have written compilations of hadith or 40 hadith compil- com- uh, compilations. And what was the sir, what was the secret that let his particular one uh, kind of uh, become, you know, world renowned? And, and the other ones are kind of not as well known or, you know, if, if even known. And uh, it, always, what I remember is the statement of Imam Malik when he was asked, you know, why are you writing a compilation of hadith? So many people are writing out, uh, what's wrong? You know, why are you doing this? And he said, Whatever was done for Allah's sake would remain. I think that's the other thing. That it's not just about, there's this whole idea, this kind of um, non-religious idea of productivity, that you be productive for the sake of productivity, this hustle culture, that kind of like, you know, sleep three hours a night and just kind of like keep hustling. But the idea is, um, you know, all of that hustle without ikhlas 
is going to be dust on the day of judgment. But a, a little bit of hustle with a lot of ikhlas and a lot of barakah in your time and a lot of sincerity, that that kind of hustle or that kind of hard work that you put in hopefully will go in a long way in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the difference is perspective. I mean, from the outside, you know, mm-hmm. the difference between these entrepreneurs sleeping three hours a day and even know it looks the same. They, they both probably sell it but it's perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Productivity for the sake of productivity and productivity for the sake of, you know, uh, serving Allah and his deen and serving the ummah of Rasulullah and that's what those uh, ulama did. And so that perspective uh, is what really uh, drives productivity because um, even previously in this conversation, I said productive for the sake of productive. But mm. what I mean by that is with the perspective of using that productivity for the sake of Allah because when the perspective is, you know, I need to uh, serve the Ummah of Rasulullah and serve Allah's deen, then mm. there's too much to do. The, the, yeah. the, the, the enough minutes in the day. And so when people say, oh, look, mashallah, you're so productive, it's really neither here nor there what, what they're saying. Like you're, you're kind of like on a man on a mission where you really need to get this thing done. Uh, and make mm-hmm. a country whether whether you're writing a book or doing a course or whatever that might be or the ibadah uh, mm-hmm. it's really like kind of having that you know uh, uh, that that deep uh, vision of, of what you wanted to do uh, the likes of uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and Imam Noe and these people that's what they have and that kind of uh, takes me to like a, you know, on that note a little bit of a you know question to yourself, Salah, you know, you got a PhD in law, inshallah, you've got a business that's hopefully running, may Allah place Barakah and all of your efforts and your mm-hmm. rizq and your studies in Al-Azhar, you know, what is it that you are looking to do when you're back? You know, Qadil Qudat, Mufti of Europe, uh, you know, what is it that's, what is your niche or what is your particular, you know, vision or plan for when you're back on the ground? What do you think that the UK needs if it's the UK that you're returning to? Um, or what are your thoughts at least of what, what people with similar backgrounds who have, you know, grown up in the West, studied abroad, you know, what's your thagar? You know, which post are you going to be standing at with your baton for the sake of the Ummah? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, people ask me this all the time, naturally. Um, mm. And I always say that it's a bit disingenuous for me to answer now because I want to base my answer on the ilm that I'm looking to seek over the next five years. Like, of course, I've, I've been on this journey maybe like eight or nine years now. And so I'm getting an idea, but I don't want to put the car before the horse. I mean, um, I want to base that uh, decision on the ilm. Uh, and you know, the more I learn about the seerah, not just audio mm. books, but the more I learn about the seerah, mm. the more I can start to ask myself what the Prophet do. Uh, the more hadith I know, the more I know how, what he did. Uh, the more I understand the Quran, the more I'll try to understand what does Allah want from me, what does Allah want from us, right? Mm. Uh, the more you learn about the fiqhi masail, the more you learn about how the ulama did things in their time and extrapolate. How can I extrapolate into this time? So, you know, like uh, there's a number of avenues. Sometimes, all the academics, they're writing to be to, to be to be read and taught over the next thousand years. Some of them are giving dawah um, on on a wider scale, uh, more uh, teaching the masses. Some are really kind of developing or uh, getting handfuls of students. Um, some are making their own institutes. Um, some are making like you know uh, Sharia councils and really implementing Islam in the West as much as they can. Some are going back to their home countries. Well, there's so many, there's so many different things. So 
Mm. I don't really have an answer for myself, except that, you know, somewhere in these examples that I've given, something, wherever Allah wants to guide me. And I really try and have a balance between planning and going with the flow. So I always have a five-year plan, not exactly what I'm doing for five years. Um, mm. With the knowledge that Allah can change it, but I, 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 I plan for a very specific five years. After five years, I just have ideas and uh, you know and, and brief understandings about. Uh, but I don't plan too much because, um, like I say, it's almost disingenuous for me to say in ten years let me be here. Well, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, you know, can guide me that way, and it's been organic so far. It's, it's working. Allah's guided me one way, like you know. Why do a PhD then come to Assad? Well, Allah guided me this way and I couldn't have done Wordsmiths without the PhD and I couldn't have done uh, Ashar without Wordsmiths. So it all, it all fits. Um, so, you know, I think um, the, the, the more important dilemma is really like how sincere the, the, the quest is and, uh, okay, yeah, I want to be Qadi. Okay, for what reason? You know, if it's not accepted, then it's, it's, it's not. It's nothing mm-hmm. worth nothing on the day of judgment. And what's the really frightening uh, analogy that people usually have is um, don't be like a candle that gives out light to everyone else but burns itself. Um, you, you know, a hundred people can, can go to Jannah through your hand and you might not make it yourself. That's, uh, That's you know, nice. when you give out and say a hundred people became Muslim at your hand, a thousand people became scholars uh, studying with you, it only compounds on the day of judgment with you know when you have the initial flame of of iman uh, mm. um, so ask allah because if, if it's not accepted you know this is a more uh, worrying dilemma really than what i'm going to do when i get back um nevertheless one must keep you know thinking along the way uh, how can i benefit the ummah uh, but for now uh, let's put the horse before the carriage let's actually get the ilm itself uh, a few years of immersion uh, and then, you know, when we come back, we'll be in a better position to answer the question. Mm. I really love that ending on uh, on good endings. And with that discussion on good endings, uh, hopefully, like, uh, inshallah ta'ala, lovely, uh, our discussion, the discussion segment of this podcast is over, and we're going to kind of take some, some Q&A from uh, those who are listening live. So if anybody's listening live, feel free to, uh, you know, in the YouTube comments, put in your put in your questions we've already got one to start with so um i'm gonna this question's in three different comments so i'm gonna put it one by one ahmed kuta asks uh given the afterlife is eternal logically it makes sense for a person to chase the pleasure of allah um based on the you know scripture which refers to the reward of a person of knowledge and teaching knowledge etc doesn't it make logical sense to then pursue your islamic knowledge and sacrifice your career pursuits if they have the drive to do so even if they were vocations which are highly rewardable, such as healthcare. Uh, do you think, what do you think of that, Salah? Very good question. Do you think one should um, sacrifice their career for, for, for the sake of knowledge? You know, it's a very good question. And <clears throat> Shia Akram, one of the profound things that he, he, he taught, and this is the example of what I mentioned in the beginning, was um, there's no such thing as um, balance in Islam, balancing in dunya and akhirah. You can't, in, you can't balance two things that are um, inherently different. Because you balance them, one, one of them is heavier than the other. You can't balance it. What we do is prioritize. We prioritize one over the other, right? And on a more meta level, uh, when you prioritize dunya and akhirah, then how, when Yom Al-Qiyam is 50,000 um, um, years, never mind the akhirah, right? So the dunya becomes so minuscule. 
And so that's the underlying, the underlying thought process, the underlying uh, mentality is that, right? Um, as for on a more practical level, then obviously when we're thinking, we're thinking with this in mind. So it's not about balancing, it's about prioritizing. Um, as for um, vocations, then what's the intention? I mean, if the, if the, if the intention of, for that person is to go into healthcare and implement the hadith that saving one life is like saving the whole of mankind, then that's a lofty intention, right? Um, I do believe we need more ulama. I do believe we need more students of knowledge. So if somebody uh, was in two minds and thinking dunya akhirah, I say, listen, go for that, go for that akhirah, like in this context, like go be students of knowledge. And the reason why, let me preface this, because I'm sick and tired of talab um, al-ilm being a last resort. And this is the case for the East and the West. The way the, the, the universities work in the Arab world is that if you get a certain percentage, you'll be a doctor. If you can't, if you get 80%, then you'll be an engineer. If you get 70%, then you'll do humanities. If you do 60%, okay, then go, go do Sharia then, right? And even in the West, we implicitly do it. Um, uh, our intelligent uh, children, they'll go and whether they'll be lawyers and doctors, et cetera, et cetera. And if they don't, if, if they didn't really manage any of that, then fine, okay, fine, do Talib al Hmm. Any intelligent person who chose himself or herself to do Talib al-Ilm faced resistance from their family nine times out of ten. And they did it in spite of uh, family pressure, uh, not due to family pressure, right? But what happens when we get someone who is intelligent enough to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, etc., uh, uh, etc., et but yet when into ilm, we get a massive scholar, right? So the likes of Ibn Taymiyyah, the likes of Ibn Qayyim, the likes of Ibn Ghazali, they, they all speak about medicine and could have been doctors themselves, but they're using that mind for Islam as a first choice, not as a last choice. Uh, and even people in, you know, um, in, in our current age uh, and, and previous uh, generations like Abul Hassan Nadwi, or even now you've got you know, people in England and America who are big influential scholars, is because they had careers in the sciences and instead they went to uh, Islam. So that's part one of my answer, which is, um, you know, if you wanted to sacrifice everything and seek knowledge, that in this current context of our current climate, uh, in this 21st century um, understanding, is that, you know, go for it because we are lacking. We are lacking people who uh, could be anything but are being scholars and don't have that mental block um, that people who treat it as a last resort do. Mm. Part two, part two of my answer, nevertheless, um, to answer the question in and of itself is um, everyone can utilize their strengths for the sake of Islam. So imagine everyone follow my advice yeah, in the world and become Islamic scholars. Now we have an imbalance because uh, the world's not going to you know, spin uh, based on the ilm of scholars. It, it, it's going to be an amalgamation of everything. So the fact that we have doctors who are also good Muslims and the fact that we have lawyers who are also good Muslims and politicians and journalists and so on this is really strengthening Islam in the West and in the East uh, abundantly and I read a Facebook post the other day um, one scholar he said you know we're in need of uh, Sharia, lit uh, Sharia literate uh, counsellors and, and, and lawyers and etc and so on more than we need of scholars um, mm. 
this is his, this, that's his speech and not mine, whether I agree or disagree, it's not the point here, but um, a more Sharia literate uh, professional class will uh, impact the Ummah tremendously. Mm. So hopefully those two answers are not too contradictory. Uh, you know, um, you can extrapolate based on your talents and based on your interests. Jazakallah mm. khair. That's um, that's a beautiful, I think, ni- nice, concise way of taking both sides. And there's a there's a principle in fiqh as well. There's no need to do either or when you can do both. Uh, so if mm. there's a way for a person to combine their profession and you know learn on the side, depending on their ambitions, then you know. There's always an advantage there. There's another question, a follow-up question, and we'll end with that. Sarupraja asks, um, don't you believe there's a benefit to having people who are cross-disciplinary? For example, yourself having done a PhD or a doctor, et cetera, as someone who's also on a serious track to scholarship. Um, but that comes with a cost, the depth to which you can go into both fields. Uh, and then his question is, what do you mo- need most now? So, uh, so uh, replying to his first comment, I absolutely agree. Uh, so on. And, and that's why that's why I alluded to um, perhaps the, that comment was was written as I was speaking, which is um, to have both is excellent, right? Um, does that come at a cost of depth? Then yes. Now, if you need to specialize and be like Sheikh al Islam, then okay. Um, there's only so many minutes in the day. There's only so many years in your lifespan that you can do that, right? Um, but as a doctor, for example, a medical doctor, who then like I know. Uh, some of uh, Sheikh Akram's um, major students who, who would now be scholars um, or imams in their own right are doctors, right? Some mm. of them are professionals. And so when someone like Sheikh Akram, when, when a senior scholar, a mujtahid, has to uh, make a fatwa, like it's a perfect example, we're in 2021, COVID. Um, what's the fatwa on that and the vaccine, all that thing, all, all, all those things. Even Sheikh Akram said, like, listen, I need to consult my uh, students who are doctors. And together we're going to come with an answer. I can't just give you an answer based on my, you know, uh, fiqh of uh, menstruation. I need to uh, ask these doctors. So those doctors who are also sufficient levels of knowledge, now they are uh, help either answering or helping to answer or contributing towards the answers towards things like euthanasia, towards abortion, uh, all these things that are hot topics now. Uh, COVID and whatnot and everything else. So, uh, and then, okay, what about, uh, you know, people in finance? You've got things like Islamic Finance Guru, uh, those companies who, these people were lawyers who now left the field uh, after studying years in Islam. They were the Islamic knowledge and the legal knowledge. And then you've got accountants and, 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 and people in finance uh, who did the same thing, joined together. Now they're giving fatwa on Islamic finance, mortgage, lease, lease car, car leasing as and so forth that's tremendously impactful so absolutely we need that for sure um, if someone decides early on uh, that you know traditional okay let them go down that path because we need those pure like you know uh, traditional scholars too but this is a joint effort between everyone for that um, and with that, I think we're going to uh, wrap up. Jazakumullah and everybody for listening. Jazakumullah Salah for your time, uh, from your busy schedule. Right. Hopefully, uh, you've included us in your in your tier one today. Jazakumullah uh, to all those who are listening. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please do consider subscribing to our channel. 
like and share the video with your friends and family who, who believe could have benefit. Uh, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, uh, and most importantly, follow us Roots Academy UK on Instagram and Facebook for regular updates from Roots Academy. Uh, you know, fill in, fill in the feedback form below or let us know what you thought. Um, and hopefully looking forward to the next few Roots Conversations where we have some exciting in guests, including Ibrahim Khan from Islamic Finance Guru, who Salah just mentioned. Um, but uh, hopefully, inshallah, looking forward to that. Jazakumullah khair, everybody. And we'll close there. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu alaik. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you,